Hello, and welcome to the Danielle Newnan podcast, where I interview tech founders and innovators to learn the inspiring human stories behind the game-changing tech we use every day. Today's guest is Brit inventor Tom Lawton, who has married the skill of design and engineering to create some really special products, including bubble picks, which would allow you to take 360-degree panoramic views way before smartphones could, and it was beloved by many, including Apple's own design team. In this wide-ranging conversation, we discuss Tom's childhood and his inclination towards curiosity and truth-telling, his ability to persist in the face of adversity, and how his latest design, Wonder, is taking the world by storm and currently, as of today, trending on Reddit. I thoroughly enjoyed talking to Tom and will link to all his inventions that he mentions in the show notes so you can check them out too. In the meantime, I hope you enjoy my conversation with the incomparable Tom Lawton. Tom, thank you so much for joining me today. Uh, with all my interviews, as I'm sure you know, I always like to go back to people's childhood. So I wanted to ask you, what were you like growing up and how did your childhood shape you? I'm the middle kid of three and I've got an older brother and a younger sister and I was thick as thieves with them. My mum and dad too. Um, we had a lovely, still do, I'm so fortunate, I have a beautiful family that's now got all of us have kids, so the grandparents, etc. But we grew up in very rural Somerset. And I think I was a very peaceful child. I think that I've always um, had this great imagination, but I was in tune with nature. I was in tune with the dynamic of my family. I had wonderful friends. Very rural Somerset means lots of trust. So I would have known the old people on the walk to school in the mornings. I'd have been the most popular kid in my class. Not that that was something I was after, but I'm comfortable in my own skin. And I think I've always been like that, which is a real blessing to have. And I was naturally inspired by nature. I spent most of my childhood up a walnut tree. So I believe in spirits and things. I actually feel as indigenous to the wild of this country as I have met in indigenous people in other parts of the world, which you'd look at as developing parts of the world, but I feel a kinship with them more than anybody else. I struggled with cities actually as I got older, but I think that one of the, the, the greatest makers of me was growing up in a space that I could have easily been bored. And I think that, that confronting boredom as a child is an amazing thing because you almost alleviate it forever because once you work out how to be the resource of your own entertainment, your own inspiration. You've kind of cracked uh, something in life that a lot of people, I think, search for. And it might be a bit of a painful thing to go through as a child because you don't really want to be bored. When my children are bored now, it's a bit of an insufferable feeling because it's like, oh, God, what? and it's like real, this dreaded kind of whatever. Um, but we grew up distraction free. My dad's an aerospace engineer, which means that every time I broke something as a child, um, he would sit and fix it and I'd sit over his shoulder and we'd fix it together. So the motivation to see that toy working again, that was part inspired by the fact that he could do it, but also the fact that we have a humble background. We, we work, we're not wealthy people. And so actually there was a frugalness of wanting to keep things going. I think that's, that, that's definitely part of my life. I never had a new bike. I always had bikes made out of secondhand parts of all sorts of other bikes, but I could cycle them faster than a kid with a rally burner or a chopper or whatever it was. And I, my dad as well was a self-taught jazz pianist, right? 
council estate background, but had an incredible way of, of unlocking this creativity within, within himself. And by osmosis, you pick up on that. I think that definitely my dad was a huge part of my inspiration as a child. But the natural world element, I think, comes from just growing up in rural Somerset. And the love of people comes from the love of people. And, and the ability to communicate comes from my mum, who's a very emotionally intelligent person. So all of those things put together, plus some madness as well. A sprinkling of insanity is always good. But yeah. your childhood sounds idyllic when you were saying about children, you know, get bored very easily these days. I know that we're part of the problem and we create an environment where our children are either gaming or watching TV or something that's much more instant, instant gratification, which a lot of us didn't have. When did you start tinkering yourself? You kind of learn a language, right? Design is a language and I love it because it's universal. It doesn't matter what you are, how you are. Design, and by that I mean form and practical solutions to problems that the engineering invention is a, is a language that's the world over and i think that if you see your dad naturally doing stuff in that space it just puts your attention into that space so what started me i don't know there's a funny story can i tell you a, a rude story it's i mean it's honestly it's the it's the most ridiculous thing when i was five my neighbor louise and i and um, we were both five somehow she instigated the idea that there was a thing called a Fisher-Price garage set. And in this garage set, there was a ramp. And in the, the, the ramp, basically, you turn the handle and the handle would go up and down and up and down. And um, I can't believe I'm telling this story. Uh, the handle would go up and down and up and down. And Louise um, uh, convinced me to put my willy in it. And I did. Um, I'm five. And she turned up this ramp and it got trapped. And the problem was, the only way of getting it out was to turn the ramp and it would go all the way to the bottom again and it would come up and now there wasn't the space for this to happen so I had to go downstairs with Louise we're both slightly heads held low although we weren't embarrassed because we're so innocent and young um and my dad had to remove this ramp from my willy and um he so he's unscrewing it physically de deconstructing the ramp and as he did so he taught me about rack and pinion mechanisms <laughs> so, which explained why it had been trapped. So from very, very early on, I've had this, and they didn't react in a silly way. It's just like this really, I don't know, there's, all, there's a dry humour to it as well. So really early on, I knew how things would work. I think the first thing that I ever took and made of my own, I remember seeing the, the Blue Peter sleigh being made and assembled. The, you know, here's one I made earlier thing. They On Blue Peter, they go through all the build and they made a sledge and I took the plans or I wrote to them and I got the plans for it. I think you could do that. I don't know if every child did that, but I got the plans for this sledge and I like woodwork. So I remember, you know, stuff with screws and nails and hammers and, and even a basic drill I could do myself without asking for permission. And I remember one Christmas I'd been given a child's tool set and on boxing day, because I was a bit um, patronized by it. Again, I'd be five or six years old. My grand bought me a real saw and a hammer that I could actually hurt myself with. So I've grown up with very unprecious people as well, who've just been like, come on, there's work to do, get on with it, give him the right tools and, um, and don't talk down to him. And anyhow, I made this Blue Peter sledge. And uh, what was funny about it was by the time the plans had come through and I got the materials, I made it in May, which was not really the right time when it's snowing. I called it Super Sleigh and I painted it red. But then I improved it. And this was the thing. I, I actually used it once and was like, mm, it's not as good as I think it could be. And, and it looked better on the telly than it was. And so I remember then having metal runners made for it, bespokely made. And we went to some sort of iron merchant and we got these rails made and we got them fitted and they had to be metal drilled. And I couldn't do that myself. And I would be six or seven at this time. 
And so it was that a real natural ability. It's just like design is such a, an iterative process of betterment. And it was just obvious some things that needed to be improved. So I improved the sledge. I made that. There was also a story with that because it's the first thing that I made. It gave me fun as well. And it saved my life. The winter that we first used it, I went out into the fields. It had been snowing that night, maybe six inches everywhere. So everywhere was a, in rural Somerset was a, was a blanket of whiteness. And I went out with my brother and my next door neighbour, Stephen, and we went out to test the super sleigh, my bright red sledge. And um, we went off into the fields. And in the distance, we noticed there were these strange snow mounds that had just appeared. And we thought, God, that looks, that looks incredible. We're going to climb these snow mounds. How has the snow landed in these mound shapes? Of course, it, it hadn't. They weren't snow mounds. They were mounds of, of manure. And, um, and as we got to the top of these mounds, my brother went first. Um, and Stephen followed, then I came last. And they'd broken the kind of the hardness of the ground. And we got to the top and, and I started to sink. And these were six foot deep piles of manure, cow manure, steaming inside that the snow had laid on. And they were six foot deep and I was four foot tall. And I started to, to sink into this um, death trap, basically. And to start with, my friend and my brother laughed until it got serious, until it, I went beneath my, uh, you know, I was, I was going from my waist and it was going up to my chest and, and they couldn't get me out. And we had to flip the sledge upside down and it was used as a platform to lift me out of this thing. So, so I was bound to my creations in a really deep, magical, imaginative, but also practical, helpful, life-saving way since I was very, very young. And I think I always knew that my path was going to involve my making mind. And actually, in many ways, I, I would say I could fix and I could repair and I could make before I could read and write. Such a fascinating intro to your life. And I have uh, to say, the, the Willie story, plus the nearly killing yourself by shit it's like <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's literally the most bizarre things I've ever heard resilience that's probably one of the most important traits I would imagine for an inventor what, what do you think are some other traits that allow one to ignore the naysayers and fight the obstacles and keep going I think that my most powerful trait in that respect and it's really natural it's something that I am and it's something that I've had to find slightly like peace with because often you're like I wish I could just be flipping conventional I wish you could just do something ordinarily and it comes from being a natural lateral thinker so lateral thinking is the big skill and it's it's not trying to be creative it's not trying to be inventive because I don't I don't actually like novelty I don't seek that but I do seek the I think the other way I think I see a madness in the crowd and I see a madness in so much of the way that society moves and I think that a lot of that comes from convenience and culture so we go with the path of least resistance but actually if you want to build your resilience what you need is resistance training what you need is things that don't go your way so actually everything serves you everything is part of the whole and I don't look at experiences I try not to draw into my ego or into the short term of things I kind of go well how this is going to serve me in some sort of way and I might be clueless about why I've had to suffer this particular thing at the time, but I have enough trust in the bigger picture that it's okay. I'll, I'll learn that at some point. And this failure might have knocked my confidence now, but I'll pick that back up again. And I think that comes from all sorts of things that you learn as a child and learning to fail and breaking arms. And it really helped me having an older brother who beat me at everything. It's really kind of crushing for your confidence when you're a kid. 
And you, you lose everything. You lose every battle, you lose every fight because you've got a bigger brother who's always going to be faster, always a bit stronger, always a bit cleverer, always he's got a girlfriend first, all, all of these things. But my brother had soul and he wasn't mean and I'm sure he was very happy to beat me all the time. But it was resistance training and actually that's an amazing thing. Absolutely. You're talking about resistance. I think there's obstacles that we face when we're young, like you were saying about childhood and and the things that we have to overcome. But I think there's an inner grit in you that is different to others. And you mentioned earlier that you're an ordinary guy. I don't agree with that at all. I don't think there's anything ordinary about you. And I think that's what makes you special and and be able to come up with the inventions. And actually, I want to talk about the inventions because this is such a big part of you. Let's go back in time. There was a time, I think it was must have been after university, and you went to India, if I'm right. And there was a, a situation where you were on a train and you came up with an idea. And obviously, I know a lot about this particular product. But can you tell me about how Bubble Fix came to be? Yeah, of course. Yeah. And it was actually, there were three things that happened kind of all at the same time. And the train in India was the final thing that made me go, ah, yes, this is it. So when an idea comes to you, it's usually coming in a number of different ways. And I'm really, really careful about what I commit my energy to, because you've got to really feel these things in your soul, because no one's really going to pay you to develop and invent something. It's going to be a struggle. It's always going to be hard work. And you've got to find that energy. And you want that energy to be self generating and so there has to be a really deep reason why I do something and and I think that I was tuning into the idea of virtual reality and what I ended up pioneering and inventing was a miniature 360 video optical accessory for the iPhone and various other things but essentially I invented a 360 camera imaging device and the first thing that happened was in 1996 1997 I found myself as a student I was working in Cape Town this is when Mandela was in power and, and I worked in high-end virtual reality and so I built the world's biggest urban simulation in VR visual simulation it was amazing and uh, so I had this access to these incredible tools I was 20 and one of the things that we had to do as we built this virtual reality space Cape Town's amazing skyline which has obviously got Table Mountain and all of the Atlantic and Indian Ocean around it we had to bring that into this virtual reality space so a colleague and I had to produce a panoramic image of the scene from the top of one of the highest buildings in Cape Town. And we kind of created this panorama out of multiple frames and they they were stitched together. And then we, through the incredible software and real-time visualisation tools, we, we bought that texture mapped and put it into that virtual space. So it became the backdrop to what we were building in VR. And, and this was all amazing stuff because nobody had these experiences and, I, and no one could show you how it worked. We were really having to work it out as we were going along. But what I saw as a 20-year-old was how this amazing immersive software enabled you to visualize the real world, essentially, but in this dynamic, immersive, interactive way. And I found that really exciting. And this was on a computer that was the size of a dishwasher. It was called a Silicon Graphics Onyx Reality Engine 2. But you knew with Moore's law, which is the law of exponentially increasing um, processing power, but this inversely decreasing physical size, that this big computer at some point is going to be in a phone. Right? It, you just knew that it was going to happen. I think that's so easy to predict so much of the future based upon almost the physics of miniaturization. So I knew the software was going to go that way. And then I did something with Channel 4 in 2000. So in 96, I've kind of got this insight into software, but it just sits there in your mind, like loosely cogitating around. I've never seen a digital camera at this point because when we put the photos into the VR scene, it was film photos, printed, scanned, put in. There's no real internet. Maybe it's just coming. All of these tools aren't here. 
So you're imagining huge amounts of it. There was certainly no iPod or even iPhones or any of those things. That was well off. No YouTube, no none of these things. And um, But I could see the promise of what immersive media was going to bring. Then I had an experience with Channel 4. I was a contestant in one of the very first reality TV shows, and I was blindfolded and dumped on an island in northern Russia with a Rastafarian called Herb Tree. And I had to find my way back from Russia with no money or very little money in a race to Trafalgar Square. The reason this is relevant is when it had never been filmed before. So when it became edited together and got put as a TV programme, and it was a prime time, a big show in Channel 4, about a year later, so it's launched in 2001, I think. And the film that I saw on the TV w- was slightly out of kilter with the experience that I'd had. And I realised the limitations of blinkered photography. And the limitations being that the film and camera work, and, and as we see through the media, it's self-edited in the moment of shooting, because if you decide to put your camera onto one um, object of interest then you've excluded actually three quarters of the scene. And so there's a thing in TV called the fourth wall and it's what people never see. And it's the bit where the camera and the film crew are. And I felt the limitations of this. And I realized that the masters of TV and media and and through reality TV in this instance were painting a picture about people's experiences that wasn't true. So they really wanted to focus on the sensationalization, the, the conflicts, the bitter parts of the experience. And I was like, that was so removed from my experience on the ground. And I felt it was limited in part by the technology. So something in me was thinking about cameras. And then I had, I would describe as a mystical experience. And the mystical experience was being somewhere near Cape Town. I was visiting in a, an area called Citrusdal, which is beautiful natural springs. So really about the nature. And I had an experience one evening. I lay in bed and uh, bizarrely, the roof of the building um, became sieged by these kind of four foot tall baboons, which was which just added a bit of Planet of the Apes theatre to it all. It was mental. But this one particular evening, uh, the full moon was up in the sky and I lay in bed and the moon was projected right in my solar plex, right in the middle of my chest. And I was like, this is so weird. Why is the moon in the middle of my chest? The moon reflects. Sure, you see it in a lake or a pond, but you, it doesn't project itself. And I, I had to wake my friend Neil up, who was staying in the twin room with me. And I said, Neil, look at this. This is mad. Here's the moon. It's on my chest. This is so weird. I moved and, and the moon was then, we stretched the bed sheet out and there was the full moon. And we were like, why is this happening? So the next day as we were on a road trip, we were talking about it. And he didn't know. Um, he was a cameraman himself. He didn't know what, why it had happened. But it, it presented a seed in my mind. And the seed it presented was, how did that happen? What was the phenomenon? And I realised it was easy there had been a satellite that somehow was between the moon and I, which the probability of which was so small, it, that wasn't the case. What it was, was an imperfection in the glass that had pinhole cameraed the moon. And so it actually made a flipped projection of itself on my chest. And I realised in that minute that it was, it was glass that had done it. So I became interested in optics. Then I found myself on a train in India. And India is the most magical country. It's so visually diverse. It was my first time there. And a number of things happened. I, I was fascinated so, so much in everybody, but I didn't want to put my camera. And I had a regular film camera. It was obviously, whatever, 35 millimeter. It looked in one direction as conventional photography does. And I was like, this is such an extraordinary place. But I feel rude if I put my camera and pointed at somebody. And I didn't really like the feeling of being filmed when I was in Russia. When the camera's at you, there's so much attention in your direction. It tends to change people's behavior so they don't act naturally when there's a camera in their face and I think that's almost true with everybody Um, so I didn't want to put my camera at all of these glorious Indian faces and souls and things I saw and and, and it was then on this train you're right it was a 56 hour from journey from Agra to Kerala 
I, I was reading Harry Potter books and my head was feeling quite magical in the simple sense. And when I say magical, I really just mean the imagination is like one of the highest forms of consciousness. And if it's guided in the right direction, and, and it's possible to, for your, your imagination to manifest into reality and you do that through applying yourself and work. And that process is like an alchemy. And, and if you do it enough, it feels magical. And then I find myself sat we were riding third class on this Indian train in this 56-hour journey. I sat in the open carriage. The door is missing on this third class train, which is just fantastic. So it's exciting. There are chickens in there. There's about 50 people behind me. And the sun was like setting over this extraordinary landscape. We're moving along and literally everything comes together then. So all of that background, that, that preamble I've described the sense of what virtual reality could do, the sense of like storytelling and the ability to capture perhaps more than the frame of the camera. And then this fascination with lenses. And all of those things come together in a moment and you have a clarity. And, and, and I think that's where I have a vision. And the vision was in that moment. And I thought, wouldn't it be amazing if I could develop an optic, a camera system that allowed me to shoot this moment in every direction, in all ways. And I could message that moment as a virtual reality bubble to my mum, who's 6,000 miles away at home, so that she could experience this wonderful vista that I'm experiencing. And I wouldn't be pointing my camera at any of the individuals in, in particular, so no one would feel conscious of it. I could just have this candid way of shooting a bubble. That was the vision then. And I think I use the word vision because it's apt. I've never seen a digital camera. I've never seen anything so sophisticatedly designed as an iPod. I've, I don't even own a mobile phone. So it's all fragments of imagination that you're putting together and the ability to visualize it with the really positive intention. And the positive intention was that if I did this, then it would enrich people's ability to truthfully share experience. It would perhaps do justice to the rich beauty and diversity of the world. And it would be fun. And I, I kind of like it. And, I, and I'm really interested in anything with design that expands human consciousness. And that's what I'm most interested in is, is how we we broaden ourselves and we broaden ourselves not by narrowing our fields of view. We broaden ourselves by expanding our fields of view to en en encompass everything and everybody. That's such a lovely story. Do you know, I literally thought it was you on this train and you wanted to get the full 360 view. Well, that's it. They, they all come together. And then, then there was another thing that made me really dig my heels in. And that was about two years into the project. Once I knew what I was doing and I'd started it and I was, I was trying to find the way. Right. So I knew nothing about this. I knew nothing about optics, no, nothing about cameras or whatever, but just try and find the way. And I quite like not knowing because it allows you to enter a journey or path of adventure with very little to lose. Because what was the expectation? Well, I didn't really know. And, and it's just this real trust that you'll get there. But something made me realize that there was a tremendous importance to it. And it was when the same friend that had been there actually with me in Russia actually also with me in Cape Town when I had this full motion experience which was just a bit mad right but it, but it wasn't a mystical experience it was just like observing the world and it's a childhood fascination of going why did that happen isn't that a funny phenomenon that I can't quite work out and it's really where the idea of wonder comes from of this this, this wondrous sense with the world of like and I like it I like not knowing everything and investigating and finding out but about two years having started that project the same friend phoned me up and he had been an embedded journalist um, with the BBC and he was with the Black Watch and they came into Iraq into Baghdad with the whole siege when they'd been in Basra, they came into Baghdad and this is 2003, forgive me if I got my dates wrong there, it was in April and it was the day that Saddam's statue was pulled down in Ferdos Square. 
you'll remember the iconic scene. And the scene was this huge statue of Saddam Hussein, which is the beginning of the Iraq war. And my friend phoned me up from satellite phone. He knew what I was imagining and he knew what I'd started work on. And he phoned me up to say, Tom, Tom, I'm on satellite phone. I'm here. The statue's being pulled down. Turn on the TV. What, tell me what you can see. So I, I'm like, okay, BBC is the same as ITV, it's the same as Channel 4. It's all a frame showing this statue of Saddam coming down. There's people hitting it with shoes. There's like a big crowd of jubilant Iraqis who seem to be, it looks like there's liberation in Baghdad, Neil, is what I said to him. But I countered that with, um, but what's really going on? And so Neil described the panorama to me and said that it would be extraordinary if we had your invention in this moment. There's this scene with the statue that's being pulled down, but actually the Iraqis aren't there under their own will. They're, they've been kettled into that space by the US military. And this is all happening 180 degrees from the biggest hotel in Baghdad with, with literally the, the world's press camped in, in front of it, on top of it, above it, the whole thing. And it's like one giant orchestrated piece of propaganda that's being put together. So that, that, And they're selling a story. But if we had the panorama of it, you'd be able to kind of go, okay, this is like, there's more to this than just that. And actually, it's funny because the whole scene um, in, in Iraq had been filmed from about half a mile away from Al Jazeera, from the top of a building. So if you turned on Al Jazeera, you'd have seen a very different perspective to the whole thing. Now, that transmission went dead halfway through because the US military shot the journalists off the top of the building. They killed them. And I've had that verified by BBC journalists who were there at the time. I think it made little footnote mentions in some sort of media. But that's how much the mainstream controls the narrative. And I, and I realised in that moment that there was a really important piece of work to do in trying to produce a type of technology that allowed us to to capture and share truth in life. And, and at the time, we hadn't really even had picture messaging. And I remember that there was a day when um, a plane went down in the Hudson River, and it was the first thing that ever went viral. It was through a thing called TwitPic, and it was this way of attaching a photo to, to Twitter, basically. And that was what I was excited about. I was excited about the idea of introducing this all-seeing, truthful media uh, into this world of citizen journalism, essentially, and really making it as a tool that empowered people to share the world. As history unfolded, I never managed to deliver upon all of those dreams and ambitions, but I, I didn't half give it a go. And it, and it certainly was part of the story of how that media and that technology evolved forwards. But in many ways, I still have work to do there. So I might, might be something I'll go back to. I think you definitely should. And I think for all inventors, if something doesn't succeed or seemingly succeed, and then you move on to something else, I would imagine it still gnaws away at you and it and it comes back in other forms. So I definitely think, especially in this day and age with a war raging. I think what's potentially interesting to, if you have listeners who are in the generations younger than I am, I'm, I'm in my mid-40s, and they feel like, God, oh, the world and it's misinformation and it's also chaotic. It's almost misinformation has been baked into the media from word go. It's literally baked in. The moment that someone's shooting, editing something with a camera in one direction, they are consciously choosing to, to not show something else. And very often with the dualistic nature of our minds and our beings, there's a game that's played with the media and it's a lot about telling narratives that, that they often might make the good look good because they're trying to make the bad look so bad. And I'm just interested in the truth. And I feel that if you told people the truth and you gave them the truth, then actually the truth would set everybody free and it would, it would move over the need for lies. So I like the idea that in the future we have these 
these amazing all-seeing 360-degree optical devices. And, and I had a vision beyond it as well. I also imagined that it could save you as well. I remember doing a lot of investigation into what the emergency services used for communications, and they used the system. I think it was called Tetra, something like that. And I thought, well, wouldn't it be wonderful if, imagine you're a policeman instead of having a gun, he had this all-seeing 360-degree camera. So if he's at the scene of an incident, instead of bringing out a, a weapon, he brought out this object of truth, and it's almost like a lightsaber, but the lightsaber doesn't shoot flame. It actually captures light from any direction, but it's GPS to that location, and it's Tetra, so it will work no matter whether the phone lines go down or not. But as a way of setting us free, of actually saying this is how it was, and I'm quite wedded to that. I actually have a really early bubble scope made in solid silver. It's right here in my studio now, with a glass eye that was made by a friend of mine that was a glass blur. And I made it in 2001, following that trip to India. And it's a non-working thing, but as I say, it's made in in solid silver and it sits in my studio. And it's almost like this little vision of the future. And I think that that's that's the wonderful thing about invention and imagination and almost the process to it. And and a lot of people think that they have to get it all right to start with. And and you don't. It all happens through evolution. The first bicycle looks very, very different to today's latest Cannondale kind of bicycle. You know, the first bicycle didn't have pedals. It didn't have a saddle properly. There were so many features that you just look at it and go oh my god that's so lame but actually everything has to start somewhere so with the 360 scene i think maybe i did pioneer something that we will benefit from maybe in decades to come you absolutely did and i was going to say one thing that i guess inventors have to get used to is the fact that sometimes their inventions are way ahead of time yeah. how do you deal with the frustration not only were you ahead of time but also then there were copycats and it's hard as an a sol- kind of solo inventor to patent everything there's just not the money for it So tell me how you deal with the frustration of either being too early or having someone copy it or both. I think that you deal with the frustration by not getting into ego. So if someone copies you, you kind of go, okay, that's because we're all, well, maybe they didn't copy you. Maybe that's the first thing to ask. Maybe they did it originally. So obviously if someone really directly infringes you, then that's, and that's like being robbed. It's like someone's come into the house and turned over your apartment. It's, It's a really horrible feeling. And you do whatever you can to, to kind of mitigate against that and to defend yourself if that happens. Actually, I think that with, with really great invention, we're evolving and we're expanding as a species. And I think that I don't own my work. I think that it comes from somewhere else. And I think that when I look at the history of inventiveness, there's something about human consciousness that's connected to it. So like the first spears appeared in the Africas at the same time as they appeared in the Americas. And nobody was telling each other hey I've just come up with a spear but it just happened because humans are all going through the same experiences we're all so incredibly similar we have the same frustrations and so the pennies drop at similar times and there's a real art and the doable so like the zeitgeist it's like there's a force that's moving us forward and it's trying to expand us it's trying to find truth and wholeness and I just feel like I'm a part of that and and so now when I see something that's like oh that's just like what I've done or whatever I, I actually have taught myself to go get out of your ego don't take that personally and remember that we are a species who are interconnected and these things happen because we're magical beings and we're all absorbing stuff in the same kind of ways. I think that's how I've wisely helped to, to deal with it over the years. But I've had it all. I've had everything kind of stolen and, and copied or whatever. And I don't know how I've done it, Daniel. I've spent 25 years doing this mm-hmm. and I've somehow kept the enthusiasm incredibly true. I've never really run out of energy, but you have to find other ways of 
finding peace in your mind. And you have to also learn to let go sometimes. With the 360 stuff, I almost I think I had too much grit. I held on so much for so long. And, and I think it, it took real courage and mental strength to come to a point to go, no, that's it. This is just going to take my energy. I have to cut myself free from it and I have to do something else. And I think that in doing that, you actually get to use the real muscles of your mind, which are your creativity. I think it's very easy sometimes when you do something that's clever to really attach to that thing. And it's like, this is going to be the one thing and it's going to make it and it's going to happen. And in reality, that's great. But the real thing was, was actually your ability to do that. And so it's just trusting yourself that you'll be able to regenerate, recreate if that happens. But you do need a certain amount of grip to stick to it. I, I think that I kept saying by I became a runner. And, and it's funny because I know that James Dyson is a long distance runner as well. And I think that I had to find a place in myself that could get out of the short termism of the world. And actually, I think that that's a huge factor in it. I don't think there really is anything too wildly extraordinary to the way that an inventor might work or be. But we are and we tend to be real long termists. And so some of the visions I have at the moment, um, I'm thinking of stuff that might emerge properly in 30 years when I'm what in my 70s. And that's different to the mindset of most of business, which is after a short-term profit, most of government policy, which is only interested in being elected in the next four years. And so I think you just realise energetically that you're a very different kind of person. And I'm an old soul and I am a long-term thinker. I'm not into novelty and pettiness. I'm into the grand vision of what we're here for. It's like it's so much more than the distractions. And somehow this path, this is irrelevant to whether you're an inventor, whether you're a writer, whether you're on any sort of creative arts, whether you're a long-termist. And I think that what I've managed to do, and I've never had any money, but everything I've ever made, I've reinvested it into myself. So that's what I do is, is that every profit, I don't go, oh, now I need this thing. I'm going to have this. I'm going to bolster my lifestyle or have this material. I don't do that. I just I reinvest in my intellectual work, my creativity, my prototypes. And I live really um, quite simply in order to give myself the chance of all of this succeeding. That is such great advice. And like you said, it's not just something to learn as an inventor. It's for everyone. I know so many people that get really obsessed, like startup founders get obsessed with their, their idea, which is much like the same as an inventor. They have an idea. They'll have lots of people reject the idea or not quite see the vision, which almost makes you more attached to your idea because you're taking absolute ownership of it and saying, well, look, you might not agree with it, but I do. Then it becomes literally like a life and death situation because some people are on on their knees running out of money and, and they do not have the ability to say, okay, step back. I've got to move on from this and try something else. And it's very difficult to unpick yourself from that. I've been in that situation. I've been in there where my mood and my emotions are so tethered to my projects. And as the projects have gone up, I've felt up and then I've gone down and I felt down. And it's, it's just not workable. I mean, I've been through everything emotionally and mentally. I felt so often so close to breakthrough and break down that it's felt like that tightrope again and again and again. And I think it's almost reduced me to a sense of nothingness. I think my ego has been beaten so many times that you end up like you're either going to give up completely or somehow you become this other way. And this other way is where I find myself now with perhaps a little bit of wisdom at my side. I wouldn't necessarily do anything differently. I think you just have to give yourself a break. It's like, I didn't know how this was going to all work out. When I first started inventing, I left university with an idea. I was working at the local golf course, being paid £4.50 an hour. I was paying a patent attorney £450 an hour. So I'd have to work 
what, a whole week to afford one hour of my patent attorney. Now, that's a tough place to start from. And that's my first invention. And that was the first door I tried to open. That's how difficult it was. And the first thing was ripped off and all, all of these things. So we go back to the resistance training and back to the big brother who's going to hold you under the water in the swimming pool. And you, you're just trying to learn to swim, for God's sake. I, I don't know any different. And I realised... I'm just quite a tough person. And, and it's really funny. You wouldn't think of me like that. I'm actually quite an emotional. I cry easily. I feel things. And so I don't know how the hell I've become such a resilient, patient, tough person. I don't know how it's happened, but I have done. And I think it's happened because I've really followed my heart. And I think that's where real strength comes from. And I think that's where real courage comes from. And I think that's where this sense of like, it will all work. And I'm not in battle with anybody. And I forgive the people who have copied me. I've struggled more with the big corporations. I've had stuff stolen by big people. That makes you feel really demoralised, actually. Not so much like you've been beaten, but it makes you feel demoralised about the system. And, and, I, and I think that whatever it is in me that's had this underdog spirit, that to me, that feels like true power. And it's also the reason why I want to be come really well established and successful is so that I can just show the way that I've done it and I can offer that power and that pathway to other people like me because I want the world to be more inventive I think that as I said right at the beginning I think design is this incredibly powerful language for how we better the world and how we express ourselves and how we move our consciousness forward but there shouldn't be so many barriers to great ideas happening and so I think once I've established myself properly i think i will turn all of my efforts back to nurturing an, a next generation of, of innovators and lateral thinkers and that's wonderful and the other thing is you might not think about this but the fact that you're out there doing talks on social media people are sharing your work it starts now your attention is on your inventions but meanwhile all those that are watching are inspired and that leads me to talk about wonder. Obviously, you've created some wonderful inventions, but let's talk about your latest, how that came to be and how you feel that it's out in the world now. So I don't think wonder could have happened without Uplift. And Uplift was very quickly, for your listeners, it's a spiral sculpture. It's powered by the sun and it's ornamental. It's kind of got no point to it, really, except it has because it's just beautiful and the world needs beauty. And it's a therapeutic device. So you, you don't need this thing, but it's a wonderful thing. And they almost have their own little life force. So they sit on a windowsill and they wake up in the morning with the sun. And, and they're just really therapeutic and beautiful to watch. And they, they seem to be calming. And I made the first one about four years ago with a friend, Ben. Uh, there's always a little collaborations. He, he's a specialist in micro renewable energy generation and it's showing me something and I was like that's really clever we could use it like this and, and ideas come together in all sorts of ways and they distill through your mind I shared it with my gran who was suffering with dementia and it had a really really wonderful effect on easing her anxieties it was pretty obvious in the moment that I showed it and it was like okay there's something cool about this and I also loved it because it was relaxing but it wasn't tethered to a phone I, I mean I love the idea of all the mindfulness apps on your phone but it's another thing on your phone still and I, I think every now and then we must get into other rhythms and so this was really about the rhythm of the day and the sunrise so I wanted to make these relaxing objects and and the irony is not lost to me that I decided to make them all by hand I've ended up making 2,650 of them yeah. uh, which has been wonderful but it's also so stressful doing that I made everyone by hand so it's not lost to me that I, I have this intention to relax the world and then end up stressing myself out and doing so but while I was making these spirals it was like the spiral went in one direction but actually it could turn in both so if it turned clockwise it seemed to spiral up 
return. Anti-clockwise, it seemed to spiral down. And this was all about the time that, that Brexit was... Brexit had happened, but like the aftermath of it. And I kind of started developing all these hundreds of customers around the world and sending them these spirals. And some people would get superstitious with it. And I thought, this is really strange. I think I'd said something like, when the spirals turn clockwise, they evoke the good spirits. And I'd met this Buddhist teacher who would describe spirals to me turning that way as being good spirits. And, and I just liked the sound of it. So I set my uplift around the world. And then some customers started to message me and they said, oh, I'm having a bad day. And I'm like, why are you telling me you're having a bad day? And they'd say to me, the spiral's going downwards. And that's so weird. It's the, because the spiral's going down, that's not making your day bad. If you think it's a bad day, it's a bad day. But the uplift isn't making that happen. And I start, as I'm making these hundreds and thousands of spirals again and again and again, and people were sending me this feedback about them, I realised that the people were attaching to things in funny ways and in the psychology of people. And it was a little bit mirrored in what I was seeing in society. I, I couldn't care whether you voted for or against Brexit. I really, it's not my business. It's not my judgment. I'm the same with so many things. And I, I found that the world was seeming to lose its sense of nuance. And this is post 2016, 2017. And everybody, everybody would attach to something and, and almost define themselves on the thing that they didn't like. And it was a bit the same with the people who were seeing the spirals go down and then going, I'm having a bad day. It made me question how I could express what I would see as the true dynamic of life. And that is that for whatever's moving up, there's something else that's moving down. For whatever's expanding, there's something else contracting. For whatever might feel like it's lurching to the left, there'll be something also lurching to the right. So you take something like politics, well, the left wing and the right wing are part of a whole, and you need both in order for democracy to fly. They are baked into the same thing. So it's only people's egos that attach to one in a binary sense over the other. And I have been on this wondrous journey of imagination, a little bit understanding who I was, trying to move beyond my own egoic limitations, my own psychological limitations, and I and get a sense of what I would describe as source. I've become very interested in consciousness teaching to understand where we are, who we are. And I just became fascinated in what I would see as a truer dynamic of life. And, and so part of it was nuance, was understanding, I wonder if there's a way of visually expressing all of this, but not in words. I wonder if I can find a way to almost break people out of the spell of this linear thinking, which I see as flatlining humanity. It's become so binary. Life's full of this incredibly diverse spectrum of thought. And I, I can see it. Why can't other people see it? So wonder was a journey on expressing this, I think, but also in expressing the nuance, the idea of knowing that in myself, when I feel down, and, when I, and there are things in life. I mean, we've all suffered bereavement. We've all suffered illness i'm sure we've all suffered failure when these things grip you and they pull you down um it, it's like a black hole it's extraordinarily powerful and it takes resilience to turn that in the right direction and sometimes it's very very difficult to it's the same with euphoria that things can bring you to a high in life but they may not always stay at that high and so life is a dynamic of push and pull and wonder became part of the investigation into my own mind i've been ruminating this way of expressing this dynamic, this form, um, this truer sense of life. And I think it's a dynamic and it's just not linear. And I think this is a really deep part of the evolution of, of humans to come out of our egos, to stop being so 
petty, to stop being so binary. We are humankind and we're here to elevate each other. And my job with Wonder is to show that there's a dynamic and it's not linear and we are part of something else extraordinary. And so I spent time with a consciousness master, um, a Taoist master about three years ago, who allowed me to spend the time doing some work on myself. I had a moment of enlightenment and I don't see that as exclusive to me. I see that as everybody's. And actually the way I think that the, the human mind works best and the creative mind works best is the stiller the mind and the more peaceful we are, it's like the truth comes to you. It took being on this very long train journey in India, very bored, um, but very peaceful, feeling a little bit magical for bubble scope and 360 and VR imaging to come to me with such clarity. And I think it took five days of meditation and Qigong practice and still minds and, and really gentle talking to allow wonder to come to me. And I felt very enlightened in doing so. And I know my duty now is to exquisitely and faithfully and with great care realize these beautiful sculptures and to and put them into magical places in the world it's the most important thing for me to do now because the world is our source it feels it's in chaos and what i've managed to do with wonder is not only visualize but fabricate a pattern that's at the essence of the consciousness and existence of the universe so the universe began about 13.2 billion years ago with a big breath and in that breath there was a dynamic and that dynamic is self-regulating in, in a toroidal form and that form is at the essence of wonder the most important thing i've done other than fabricate wonder is to share wonder which i did it through the pandemic and i installed the first one i gifted it to my town it sits now in Malmesbury abbey next to the resting place of the first king of england who is a guy called Athelstan. So this is this is what the guy who united England. I see this as a unifying form for the whole world. And the important thing I've done is not explain it. And it doesn't have my name on it. It's wonder. Of course it's mine. I'm so proud of it. But it's not about me. This is like a talisman for a new way of being. And it's brought the most extraordinary people to me. I have Kate Raworth, renegade economist, who sees the new model for our entire economic system away from linear into this regenerative diverse it's it, it giving back as it's as it's taking i've got brian eno the, the father of ambient music who who's the only person i made another one for he has one that sits in his studio and he's inspired to create music with it i have extraordinary interest in this object which i haven't even yet began to market and, and as i say the most powerful thing is not explaining what it is because that really invites the viewer the observer to come forward with their own interpretation and i think that's Something that's missing in the world at the moment is that the world is so noisy. There's, there's so many half-baked experts trying to tell you how things are, and they haven't got the first grasp on the nature of themselves, yet alone the nature of reality, yet alone the nature of how we must all be and do. And you only need to take something like the pandemic to realise that life needs nuance and it needs different responses for different people in different ways. Tom, I appreciate everything that we've discussed today. I came into the interview with a whole host of questions and I feel like half of them we didn't get through, but we did because we talked around the subjects. And I love that we didn't just focus purely on the invention side and we looked at humanity. That's really important to me, as I know it is for you. I have one last question, which I ask everyone. If you could go back in time, what's one piece of advice you'd offer a younger Tom? I think I'm really clear with that, actually. I think I've poorly judged people with money all my life. I think that because I grew up without money and it wasn't part of my life, don't get me wrong, we, we had everything we needed. I think that I've been cynical about people who are rich. And I think money is just an energy. 
So it can be good and it can be bad. And I think that growing up, I think that I perhaps saw too many experiences of where it was used for bad and it was used for greed and perhaps with the wrong egos and the characters didn't make me attracted to it. And therefore, I've undervalued myself, my own worth. I've never seen myself as having any tie with money. And I and I actually think I, I've i undersold myself and it's taken me to this stage in my life to actually really go, no, you you are worth it just because you weren't born with it. Just because you've not found it easy to come to you, it doesn't mean you don't deserve it. And also have the trust in yourself that it won't make you a bad person, Tom. And I think that that was my fear, was that if I became rich, I would become like everybody else that I saw was rich. And and I think now I've met people who've generated wealth or maybe come from wealth in different ways that are, that are really high quality people. And I think that I've learned to not judge that now. And I now know myself that when I become more prosperous, that I will do so much good with it. I'm sure you will. Thank you so much, Tom. I really appreciate your time today. You're welcome. It's so nice to chat to you. Thank you so much for listening to my conversation with Tom Lawton. I've got a quick favour to ask you. If you enjoyed this episode, please do like and review the podcast. It always means so much to me and my guests, and it helps others to find it too. Finally, I wanted to leave you with a quote from Tom, which I think sums up his story quite well. He says, My whole career has been a perfect balance of highs and lows, of enlightenment and despair. I wouldn't have it any other way. Thanks again for listening, and until next time, stay safe, stay well.